Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Asikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is uh, Sunday, uh, February the 12th, uh, 2023. Uh, we're broadcasting live uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. Uh, we want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in to another edition of uh, the Pan-African Journal special worldwide radio broadcast. Later on, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire reports. We'll have dispatches on the public statement uh, made by the African Union encouraging the continuation of dialogue related to the Ethiopian Peace Accord signed in Pretoria and Nairobi uh, during late uh, 2022. The Ethiopian Orthodox Church has postponed a demonstration after meeting with Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed. We'll have details on that as well. Reports from Niger uh, say that a number of soldiers have been killed by rebel fighters inside the West African state. And the government of the Republic of Sudan and the Russian Federation have held talks on plans for a joint Red Sea development project. In the second and third hours, we continue our focus on African American History Month. We look back on the lifetimes and contributions of Haley Quinn Brown, an African American woman's historian, uh, organizer, and public speaker. Finally, we review the role of Langston Mercer Hughes uh, in African American history, the social sciences, and culture as a poet, playwright, composer, and public intellectual. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. So stay tuned. We'll take our musical interlude uh, in the West African state of Ghana with the African Brothers Band International from the album entitled Locomotive Train. One, two, three, four. Yeah, I'm going to 
the alive. Now, I beg you, make you all help me. Tell every man and woman where he is inside this world. Something about love. That makes everybody hold in love tight. For this world we day inside. Number one, living in peace. Number two, fear. Yes, yes. Number three, corner, corner. We day inside proper. Alive. No. Now here we go. One, two, three, four.
of our program for Sunday, February the 12th, uh, 2023. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. And that was the music of the classic uh, West African Ghanaian band, uh, the African Brothers Band International uh, from the album entitled Locomotive Trains. Right now we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment. Our lead story uh, deals with a statement that was issued by the African Union uh, he had called uh, yesterday for a political dialogue between Ethiopia, the Ethiopian government and <clears throat> Tigrayan officials uh, more than three months after a peace agreement that ended a conflict uh, in the north of the country. The statement issued uh, yesterday in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, was the outcome from a meeting of the monitoring committee for the peace agreement, which took place on Friday. That included representatives of the Ethiopian government, the Tigrayan leaders, and the Intergovernmental Authority on Development, the East African Regional Organization. A peace agreement was signed in November 2022 in Pretoria between the Ethiopian government and the rebels of this northern region of Ethiopia after two years of conflict. Since the Pretoria agreement, uh, the fighting has halted and aid deliveries are taking place. Flights between the capital of the Tigray region of Mekele and Addis Ababa restarted in early January after an 18-month interruption. Access to Tigray is restricted, making it impossible to independently verify the situation on the ground. And also in Ethiopia, the Orthodox Church in Ethiopia has called off demonstrations planned for today following a meeting uh, with Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed. The protesters uh, followed the creation of a breakaway synod uh, by the Ethiopian Orthodox Tiwahido Church bishops in uh, the region of Oromo. <clears throat> breakaway uh, bishops accused the church of discrimination and linguistic and cultural hegemony, saying congregations in Oromia are not served in their native language, claims rejected uh, by uh, the patriarch. Secretary of the Patriarch of the Orthodox Church, uh, Abu Nei, Petro said, quote, the Holy Synod has postponed the February 12th peaceful demonstration for an indefinite period of time, uh, not because of a change of position, but because of the government's agreement and decision to solve the problem immediately within a deadline set by the church, which opened its doors for peace, unquote. At least 30 people have been reportedly killed uh, in unrest in the past week, and social networks have been restricted. It follows uh, claims by breakaway bishops the church was discriminating against them over the use of their 
<clears throat> own language in Oromia. Orthodox leaders have long complained of persecution, including the burning of churches uh, several years ago, and relations with the government have been tense in the past, including over the Tigray conflict. In other news, in West Africa, at least 10 soldiers have died in an ambush in southwestern Niger, uh, close to the border with Mali, by a group described as, quote, armed terrorists, unquote. Government sources say the death toll from Friday's attack is expected to rise as 16 people are still missing and others were wounded. The troops were on patrol in the north of Banabangu Department when they faced an assault uh, by a rebel uh, group described as a jihadist organization. Last week, armed groups stormed a camp in the Tahua area, uh, housing refugees from neighboring Mali. Nine people were killed uh, in these attacks. According to the United Nations, over 61,000 Malian refugees currently shelter in Tahoe in uh, Tilaberi. On Saturday evening, France condemned in the strongest possible terms the attack that left 10 dead. The French foreign minister expressed his full solidarity with the Nigerian authorities and people and stand by them in the, light, in the fight against terrorism. Uh, France is supporting Niger in its al Mahau operation and secure to secure the border of Mali uh, with 250 soldiers in a quote combat partnership end quote Niger is also one of the options uh, for the redeployment of French special forces driven out of neighboring Burkina Faso by the ruling military government after the departure of French soldiers from Mali last year and a scheduled pullout shortly from Burkina Faso France will only station 3,000 troops in the Sahel region including Niger and Chad, where jihadist groups roam. All the countries involved are former French colonies. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, this Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In other news, Sudan's ruling military concluded a review of an agreement with Russia to build a naval base on the Red Sea in the African countries. Uh, Two Sudanese officials said this on yesterday. They said the deal was awaiting the formation of a civilian government and a legislative body to be ratified before it takes effect. The official said Moscow met Sudan's most recent demands, including providing more weapons and equipment. It cleared all of our concerns. The deal has become okay from the military side, one official said. The officials did not provide further details and spoke on conditions of anonymity to discuss internal deliberations. A spokesman for the Sudanese military declined to comment. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov also said on Thursday, the deal still needs ratification by Sudan's yet-to-be-formed legislative body. Sudan has been without a parliament since a popular uprising forced the military overthrow of the longtime leader Omar al-Bashir in April of 2019, almost four years ago. The country has been mired in political unrest and instability, since another October 2021 military coup derailed a short-lived transitional authority. The deal which surfaced uh, in December of 2021 is part of Moscow's efforts to restore a regular naval presence in various parts of the globe. Uh, It was reached during the al-Bashir administration. The agreement allows Russia to set up a naval base with up to 300 Russian troops and to simultaneously keep up to four Navy ships, including nuclear power ones, and the strategic Fort Sudan 
on the Red Sea. The base uh, would ensure the Russian Navy's presence in the Red Sea and the Indian Ocean and spare its ships the need for long voyages to reach the area, according to Viktor Banderov, uh, the former Russian Air Force chief. In exchange, Russia is to provide Sudan with weapons and military equipment. The agreement is to last for 25 years with automatic extensions for 10-year periods if either side objects. And uh, finally, uh, in regard uh, to developments uh, taking place uh, in uh, the East African state of Kenya, on the packed streets of Nairobi, Cyrus Karyuki is one of the growing numbers of bikers zooming through traffic on an electric motorbike, reaping the benefits of cheaper transport, cleaner air, and limiting planet warming emissions in the process. Each month, one doesn't have to be burdened by oil change, engine checks, and other costly tolls by the international press. Electric motorcycles are gaining traction in the East African state of Kenya as private sector-led firms rush to set up charging points and battery swapping stations to speed up the growth of cleaner transport to put the East African nation on the path towards fresher air and lower emissions. And you can read all of these articles in their entirety. Uh, on the Pan-African Newswire website. And uh, in concluding uh, this this segment of the Pan-African Newswire, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998, since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in numerous newspapers, uh, magazines, journals, research reports, blogs, and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to uh, the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, all you need to do uh, is go uh, to our website, and that is at uh, the Pan-African Newswire, and that's at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, if you'd like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal, special worldwide uh, radio broadcast, just go to our website uh, at the Pan-African Radio Network. And that's at uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And uh, by logging on to uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal, not only can you have access to today's program uh, for Sunday the 12th, uh, 2023, but well over other, uh, well over um, 1,200 other archived editions uh, of the Pan-African Journal. And uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide uh, radio broadcast. And uh, right now we're going to take a musical break, and uh, we'll be back uh, with more of the Pan-African Journal for uh, this week. And this is the Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast. Hey, 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 hey,
I'm the one who 
Welcome back, and uh, that was uh, the Tempting Temptations uh, live in 1966 uh, at the Upper Deck uh, on the east side uh, of the city of Detroit. And uh, you're listening to the Pan African Journal special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, uh, February the 12th, uh, 2023. And we are broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. And uh, this is uh, African American History Month. And as we have announced uh, all during this month, uh, that we're dedicating a a tremendous amount of our programming uh, to the historical and cultural and artistic contributions to African people in North America and indeed throughout the world. Uh, African American History Month started as Negro History Week in February of 1926 by Dr. Carter G. Woodson, a historian. Uh, who earned his Ph.D. from Harvard University, uh, taught at Howard University for a number of years, and then became an independent historical researcher and publisher. In 1915, uh, he began uh, the journal, uh, he began the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History, and in 1916, he began the Journal of Negro History. uh, And, of course, uh, many other contributions, literary, historical, and institutional. 
one historic figure, Hallie Quinn Brown, uh, of course, was a women's historian. Uh, she was a elocutioner, uh, a dramatist, and a public speaker. We're going to listen to uh, the a lecture uh, based upon a dissertation that was written on Hallie Quinn Brown, who was born during the period of enslavement and lived uh, well into uh, the first half of uh, the 20th century. Uh, she was active in the African-American Women's Club movement uh, that began uh, during the 1890s and early years of the 20th century. At one point, she was the president of the National Association of Colored Women that brought together thousands of uh, African women's clubs uh, and organizations from throughout the United States beginning in the 1890s. Let's listen in uh, to uh, this uh, discussion on Hallie Quinn Brown. Good evening. On behalf of Black Mountain Library, I welcome you to another presentation in our literary series. I am Edna Baines and I serve on the planning team. We are excited to have one of our Swannanoa Valley neighbors for our speaker in this presentation, Dr. Dalia Goodwin. Dr. Goodwin is on the faculty of Warren Wilson College, where she is a professor of history. A native of Indiana, she graduated from Florida A&M University and then received a PhD in history and African-American history from the University of Georgia. For her dissertation, she explored the life of an extraordinary but sometimes overlooked black woman, Miss Hallie Quinn Brown. Over the past weeks, I have been reading Dr. Goodwin's dissertation and it was fun reading. I really enjoyed that and I just can't say that about too many dissertations. I know you are also going to enjoy learning about Miss Hallie Quinn Brown. Following Dr. Goodwin's presentation, there will be several questions, and there will also be information on how you can contact her if you would like to know more about this subject. Once again, welcome, Dr. Goodwin. We look forward to this presentation. Okay, <clears throat> thank you. Good afternoon, um, everyone. Thank you for joining me in this conversation about black woman elocutionist, Ms. Hallie Quinn Brown. And before I begin my talk, I want to acknowledge the Eastern Band of the Indigenous Cherokee upon whose land I reside and extend a special thank you to Gail, Edna, and Melissa from the Black Mountain Public Library. The title of my talk is Hallie Quinn Brown, Musings on a Black Woman Elocutionist. I'm gonna start with reminding some and introducing to others who Ms. Brown was, then I'll move into a discussion and analysis of her work and finally offer some reflection. This is Ms. Hallie Quinn Brown, born March 10th, about 1849 in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, the fifth of six children born to Thomas and Francis Brown. The Brown family relocated to Ontario, a thriving, black, uh, a thriving center of black population in Canada in 1864. Brown would go on to attend and graduate from Wilberforce College in 1873. Throughout her life, she served as an educator, dynamic elocutionist, dedicated suffragist, and unwavering temperance crusader. 
Primarily, scholars remember Brown for her work as a professional elocutionist and emphasized her usage of speech and rhetoric as an instrument for Black racial uplift. By the late 1800s, elocution as an academic discipline appeared in the formal academy and increasingly as a form of entertainment for elite and middle classes. Indeed, excellence in elocution highlighted the art of discourse and became a science of body control and mental discipline. Brown mastered this art form and toured the United States and Europe as an individual reader or lecturer and with concert companies speaking in behalf of organizations and colleges. Her distinct techniques and style drew diverse crowds and garnered thousands of dollars to finance and promote her causes. She authored textbooks in elocution and demonstrated its function in exhibiting morally upright, principled, transformative speech. Brown's skill as an elocutionist set her on a level far above her peers. Her colleagues celebrated her for being of rare power and skill. American journalists esteemed her as a woman with few superiors and no equals. Internationally, European newspapers lauded her as one of the finest female elocutionists in the world. Brown's innovative performance style incorporated the oral traditions of African-American storytelling, as well as the technique and rhythm associated with African-American preaching and congregational singing. She merged recitation, lecture, song, and poetry in a manner that not only entertained, but also preserved African-American cultural art forms. Brown found her passion in elocution and put it to her advantage whether it was fundraising for libraries, ladies' dormitories, scholarships, or supplemental income for her personal finances, her numerous tours and countless appearances economically sustained Brown and her causes. In addition to the economic motivation and benefit, these tours enabled Brown to get a firsthand account of the condition of Black people across America and the world. It provided her with the vantage point from which she could appropriately assess the condition of Black people and especially see the needs of Black women. Through elocution, Brown came into her own as a political woman. And from here, I want to pull out three areas in Brown's work where we see her use her voice or the spoken or written word to advocate in behalf of Black people and specifically Black women. Throughout her career as an educator, Brown developed a specific philosophy of education centered on themes of Christian moral education and equal educational opportunities for each gender that she believed would lead to Black racial uplift. The term Black racial uplift, or, or simply put, race uplift, represents the inward turn efforts and self-help ideologies of African-American women and men to change positively the social, political, and economic direction of Black people. This collection of goals and philosophies for African-Americans included, among others, education, equal opportunities, health reforms, political representation, community development, and business ownership. A distinct group of African-American women and men, known as race women and men, and uh, led the movement and distinguished themselves from the masses through their financial wealth, educational attainment, and scrupulous virtue. They saw their interventions as a positive force in shaping the destiny and common collective of Black people. Now, as much as Brown and her colleagues used Christian education to offer hope, they believed that Christian education was their only hope. She invested her life in the idea of upright, moral teaching leading to African-American equality and relied on past histories to do so. 
Brown confidently maintained, quote, the histories of ancient republics demonstrate that without universal Christian education, that is a sufficient intelligent virtue among the people, there cannot exist true liberty. In other words, Christian education led to and maintained freedom. Insisting upon Christian education worked both ways. On the one hand, living in a democratic society entitled a person to an education, and the only acceptable type of education a democratic society offers is a Christian education. On the other hand, Christian education's focus on moral values and leadership trained individuals in modern model citizenship. Moral character led to progressive democratic societies. And Brown believed that Christian education facilitated black racial uplift, but she also believed that the act of participating in education, teacher or student, exercised citizenship and made a meaningful contribution to society. It gave African-Americans, quote, the opportunity to make real what the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and Bill of Rights said. Education became the means for African-Americans to access promises and privileges due them. Education was the practice of their freedom. And if education is the practice of freedom, then it must be available to everyone, which represents the second part of her philosophy of education. Brown and her colleagues believed education prepared women for their spiritual missions and purposes in life, namely motherhood, as well as the gender specificity of race uplift. Education, she wrote, enabled women to cleave to those things which enlarge her sphere and tend to uplift, which make for better citizenship, for child welfare legislation, health and sanitation, to work for higher standards in art and literature, for improvement in the moral, social, and industrial conditions and world peace. She understood the education of women to be essential to society's most fundamental unit, the family. In a very matter-of-fact manner, Brown stated at the African Methodist Episcopal Church Conference in 1889 that, quote, men expect to see something more than dressed dolls in their parlors in these progressive times. If a man is educated and his wife is not, he will soon outgrow her. He will be seeking the society of some other higher educated woman. At, this, at one point during the same uh, AME conference, Brown suggested that the husband go to school for six months and the wife attend school for the other six months to equalize the matter. And this was in 1889. Women's education did more than make wives more compelling for their husbands. It taught black women the skills they needed to contend in the 20th century. At the, turn of the 20, at the turn of the century, America repositioned itself within international economic and political frameworks while immigration, industrialization, urbanization, and capitalist expansion proliferated. Brown's educational philosophies reflected those advancements and presented new, varied, and necessary opportunities to women outside of domesticity and increasingly separate from motherhood, wifedom as well. Equal educational opportunities for women enabled women to lessen or end possibly their dependency on men. Brown also endorsed women's physical education as part of school curriculum. Recalling an episode from her own life after she enrolled in college, a professor, Reverend John G. Mitchell, told Brown, quote, you must not do so-and-so. You must be still. You must be ladylike. You must not act like Tommy. You must learn to be refined. You must not romp and skip. 
Initially, Brown seemed to struggle with this chastisement and resigned herself to the sedentary, refined lady, or what scholar Colette Dowling refers to as the cult of frailty. See, physicians of the era believed that human bodies contained a finite amount of expendable energy, and women's bodies harnessed energy for reproduction. Many doctors and other specialists believed educational pursuits, mental or physical activities interfered with women's primary focus and thus depleted women's energy supply. Years after the incident, though, Brown began politely debunking the idea that excess physical activity harmed women's genitals, um, hindered their reproductive ability, and made them unladylike. In fact, she argued that exercise helped women. And while she does not use this medical terminology uh, commonly associated with the connection between uh, motor development, cognitive development, and hormonal release, Brown did believe that, quote, brain power will never attain its highest possibilities unless there is a healthy and complete physical development. Girls may jump and skip and play and develop muscle and get health and vigor. Women needed exercise and physical activity as if their life depended upon it. Women's rights advocates supported this notion and encouraged women of the era to reject the cult of frailty and embrace the cult of ability. The cult of ability faced many detractors like AME Minister James Johnson, who insisted women's efforts to, quote, masculinize herself, lessens her modesty and damages her standing as a woman. She was not made to show the brawny arms of Vulcan nor the ponderous proportions of the Antilles. Despite the bicycle's new exercise and leisure machine of the 1880s, uh, promises to help women strengthen their abdominal muscles and develop strong leg muscles to improve pelvic tone and help make childbirth um, easier, Johnson thought that women just, quote, simply didn't look right uh, on it, and he chastised women for drafting on manhood. Their behavior subverted the natural order, and they failed as true women and instead succeeded as, quote, monstrous outgrowths of the coarser elements of female nature. Arguments endorsing women's physical activity occurred alongside arguments to eliminate restrictive physical clothing imposed upon women, such as corsets and girdles. Brown urged women to rely on their natural muscle and backbone rather than those artificial supports. One woman claimed that long skirts and corsets perpetuated women's weaknesses by literally tying us up in a clothing that our muscles in some parts of our body dwindle so they become useless. Early women's rights activist Mary Wollenstone Craft insisted that preventing girls and young women from physical activity and exercise kept them from full development and made women weak. Cultivating physical frailty uh, ensured women remained weak, exhausted, immobile, unable to move, and dependent. It was an effort to immobilize women socially and politically. Brown's endorsement of women's physical activity and the success of womanhood asserted women's political rights beginning with their person. Brown's advocacy for physically strong women, though, uh, women seems inconsistent with her endorsement of a genteel women. When black women appropriated respectability as a women's redeeming feature, it apparently required them to avoid unfeminine images of vigorous women and physical strength. Scientific racism supported beliefs that stripped black women of womanhood and humanity and classified them as breeders and laborers only. 
The sensationalized physical strength of black women then justified their physical and sexual exploitation. Now, on a personal level, Brown wanted very much to embrace the totality of respectability, but the realities of her life never allowed her to access that particular type of womanhood. Brown learned early on in life that women needed physical strength and must participate in physical activity to function. Growing up on a farm in Canada, Brown oversaw most of the labor-intensive farm maintenance. Later, as a teacher in Reconstruction Era, Mississippi and South Carolina, she had to haul logs, chop wood, pull mules, and literally erect school buildings. So the idea of a woman, especially a black woman, not exercising, sweating, or engaging in physical activity was preposterous to Brown, and certainly to other women. Brown's educational philosophy negotiated between the esoteric ideals of Victorian womanhood and the realities of black women's lives. She reconciled physical strength and respectability to offer an expanded version of femininity and specifically notions of black femininity. The black woman that she constructed for racial uplift had upstanding moral character, academic preparation, domestic training, and the stamina to survive. To ensure black female education and contribute to black women's empowerment, Brown then turned her attention to black women's organizations, namely the National Association of Colored Women. In 1896, the National Association of Colored Women, the NACW, became the first and only all black national organization for black female activism, organizing, and leadership in the 20th century. Black women's local and national clubs provided a space for black women to meet not only the needs of their communities in black America at large, but address those needs in a manner that reflected the evolving discourse of the turn of the 20th century. The NACW organized a platform that advocated moral superiority, education, respectability, social purity, and home care to negate white beliefs of black inferiority and immorality, and then amplify claims of black political enfranchisement and social equality. Now, this is an image of Hallie Quinn Brown in the center in the beige whitish suit. And there's also Ida B. Wells Barnett in the picture, about two people down from her. Um, and these were just some of the women affiliated with the National Association of Colored Women, and they were stopping for a photo as a delegation to speak to President Warren Harding in 1922 on anti-lynching. And I just really liked this picture and wanted to share that with you all. So Brown becomes a key figure in both the local and national clubs. She founded several clubs in her home state of Iowa, um, Ohio, excuse me, and served as president, state president of the Ohio Association of Colored Women's Clubs from 1905 to 1912. From 1920 to 1924, Brown presided over the NACW as its national president. Brown's national presidential terms coincided with a period of enormous possibility for women and African Americans. Now, we know that by 1920, most states had ratified the 19th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution that enfranchised women and expanded women's political power. The flapper and uh, sexual movement occurring among women so often ascribed to the era really did not interest Brown and most of her contemporaries. Brown viewed uh, the bobbed hair and abbreviated skirts and rolled hose, as she called it, of the 1920 flappers as nothing more than a passing fad that dishonored black women. Sexual freedom really did not indicate women's progress and equality. It actually hijacked the discussion of women's needs and belittled women's claims of sexual exploitation. 
Instead, women's organizations like the NACW stress political strategies celebrating women's redeeming features, uh, their current or potential motherhood, and inherent morality to usher in social reforms and legislation. Although pervaded with problems, industrial growth created new types of job opportunities for African Americans who approached the era hopeful for a better future as well. Many black Southerners migrated to northern cities in search of new employment. African American men service in the armed forces and the sacrifice of black women on the home front during World War I demonstrated African American patriotism but came short of any longstanding legal changes. At the same time, African Americans of the 1920s increasingly turned away from a liberal reform method to a more revolutionary approach in the struggle for civil rights. A prolific movement that celebrated black aesthetics and analyzed the complexity of black life in America simultaneously occurred. And so it's in this context that Brown developed a presidential agenda that considered the emerging gender consciousness among women triggered by their access to suffrage alongside ideologies of race progress. During her presidency, Brown reinvigorated the NACW's educational mission. Through the NACW, Brown continued to carry out her educational philosophy with the backing of her fellow club women, many of whom had their own woman-centered um, emphasis or educational on education um, as well. In 1923, she began her largest work in the name of Black Female Education, a $50,000 educational campaign. As all material objection according to nature laws must decay and pass away, she proclaimed education and access to education for black women built an enduring monument. And while Brown endeavored to build a symbolic educational monument, she simultaneously worked to tear down another. In 1923, the U.S. Senate granted the United Daughters of the Confederacy, the UDC, a place in Washington, D.C. to erect a monument to the most salient stereotypes of enslaved women, black mammy. This is a slide of the um, proposed monument uh, structure and imagery. The black mammy that the UDC desired to memorialize existed both as a real person and as a created figure of the white Southern imagination. Enslaved black women who served as domestic workers and primary caretaker of white as well as black children during slavery received the name mammy. White Southerners in particular perceived them as enjoying this condition of servitude, uh, deference and loyal. Post-emancipation, many black women continued as domestic workers and caretakers of white children, but sought to define those conditions on their own terms, causing many white Southerners to long for this black mammy. The post-slavery memory of black mammy represented a narrative of Southern redemption and projected myth sentiment, labor, and white supremacy upon black women's bodies. As president of the leading organization of black women, Brown denounced the erection of such a monument and image as representative of black women. Brown countered the claims of Mammy's faithful disposition by referring to her, quote, years of tortured mind and body through generations of oppression and suppression, through subjection, fear of the block and the lash, and through the heartaches and groans in the nighttime of her own lost babe. She was the unfortunate, faithful victim of the white man's lust. Brown commended Mammy, though, for maintaining moral superiority far above her oppressors, especially white women of the South, who Brown argued knowingly participated in black female exploitation. 
Brown claimed that the erection of such a statue in the name of tribute, appreciation, and honor would cause Mammy to rise from the dead crying, I asked for a fish, you gave me a serpent. I asked for bread and you gave me a stone. And ironically, the proposed granite monument literally gave black women, Mammy, a stone. Feminist theorist Marilyn Fry suggested gestures of this type actually reveal oppression. The Black Mammy Monument pretended to be a helpful service, but had no practical meaning for Black Americans and actually demonstrated the extreme detachment the UDC and its supporters had from the concrete realities of African American life. Furthermore, the UDC's insistence upon fundraising, politicking, and building a monument illuminated white superiority over African American needs. Brown stated it plainly, though. Quote, if the daughters of the Confederacy are actuated by any deep reverence and gratitude for the former slaves, if they wish to salve their conscience and make amends for the wrongs heaped upon the black mammy, let them begin to change the conditions in this fair Southland. Brown went on to detail a short list of meaningful contributions for the UDC, including a living wage, decent accommodations for travelers um, and schools. African-Americans did not need a Black Mammy monument. They needed food and acceptable housing, justice in the courthouse, a repeal of Black codes and Jim Crow laws, an end to lynching, and an end to defrauding Black tenant farmers. African-Americans needed economic empowerment. And Brown concluded that African-Americans needed the entitlements of citizenship and humanity, not a, quote, dumb statue to the Black Mammy. Brown's choice of words invites further investigation. Our internationally acclaimed elocutionists knew the politics of language. The very act and audacity of speaking was an exercise in citizenship and practice of freedom. Now, in our modern day language, the word dumb is used as a type of slang or, or, or something uh, for something that is uncool, ridiculous, or foolish. But in the 1920s, dumb was still used as a literary and medical term um, for something or someone who could not and did not talk. So in calling it a, quote, dumb statue, Brown stated the obvious because statues do not speak. However, if the statue could speak, what would she say? Well, Black Mammy would say nothing because the monument was of a woman who could not speak, an enslaved woman. And the thought of a statue immortalizing a silenced Black woman unable to engage in the politics of her life exacerbated the initial insult of erecting the statue. So when and where do we see Black women speaking for themselves and on their own terms? Well, I argue that Holly Quinn Brown set the stage by doing so, for doing so by editing the first collective collaborative Black women's encyclopedia, Homespun Heroines and Other Women of Distinction in 1926. Here, um, here's a short list of some of the earliest examples of collective biographies featuring African-Americans. Hallie Quinn Brown's publication, Homespun Heroines, in 1926, mirrors these other historical works as collective biography, yet remains recognizably different in that it was a collective, collaborative biography of Black women written by multiple Black women, as demonstrated by the examples here and from other historiographical studies of African-American texts, few collective biographies devoted to the experiences of Black women existed and women authored only a handful of those. 
To be sure, I do not intend to suggest that you must be a member of a particular group to write a history that is to say only black women can write black women's history. However, these black women authors asserted a particular insider knowledge that authorized and emboldened them as a group to document the experiences of black women. Excuse me. There we go. <laughs> okay. This is a list of the subjects in the book. And I've outlined them here alphabetically for aesthetic purposes. In the book, Brown chronologically ordered the subjects by date of birth. So in um, the sketches in Homespun Heroines begin with Martha Payne, mother of African Methodist Episcopal Church Bishop Daniel Payne, and conclude with Eliza Fox, the former president of the Women's Baptist Association of Virginia. And at the time of publication, some of the women had already achieved national and international acclaim and posthumously retained celebrities such as Phyllis Wheatley, Harriet Tubman, and Sojourner Truth. Most of the women included in Homespun Heroine achieved national prominence at the turn of the 20th century, such as former president of the National Association of Colored Women and wife of Booker T. Washington, Margaret Murray Washington, and business uh, mogul and entrepreneur, Madam C.J. Walker. For white readers, these biographies may have appeared exceptional and not reflective of everyday black women's experiences. Indeed, these biographies did not fit into the popular historic narrative about black women then, and they certainly challenge that narrative now. These sketches did not perpetuate negative myths of black women. These types of accounts of black women forced the public to reevaluate their stereotypes about black women. For Black readers, Brown's strategic use of collective biography made the lives and history of Black women accessible and meaningful. Collective biographies of African Americans offer tangible meanings of racial possibility from within the Black community without merely mimicking white American beliefs of progress or possibility or showing African Americans in an accommodationist act. It demonstrated their successful balance of domesticity and professional activities and careers. The collective biographies became a powerful, efficient tool for disseminating life sketches and stately portraits of leading successful and representative women. It presented the reader with a familiar, approachable reference group against whom character and success may be measured. Equally as fascinating are, um, as the heroines are the 28 authors who contributed to this collection. It is this group of under-acknowledged Black women intellectuals who created the field of Black women's history. Their work with homespun heroines made the space for modern Black women's historical encyclopedia canonical standards, such as Darlene Clark Hines' three-volume Black Women in America and Jesse Carney Smith's Notable Black Women, and others which normalized the intersection of U.S. history, African-American history, and women's history. Homespun heroines and other women of distinction became part of a structured and well-established canon used to affirm identity, personhood, and patriotism. And as a text, it institutionalized Black women as a subject of serious inquiry in American history. Brown captured the ways that race and gender intersect that forced Black women to always negotiate dual systems of oppression in ways that Black men and white women did not. The biographical sketches in Homespun Heroines revealed how Black women navigated oppressive structures and barriers via education, work, 
service and respectability, um, enabling Brown to identify these women and others like them as a specific and independent class. The type of class Brown constructed does not follow a true Marxian economic class uh, formation model, but rather a social and cultural formation model as expressed by Robert Lanning. Lanning surmised, a class is comprised of people in similar social circumstances such as living conditions, the kind of works they do, the comparable position on the larger social divisions of labor. And Brown demonstrated that black women lived, worked, and loved like all people, but that the conditions under which black women did so situated them uniquely. And once a class is formed, individuals then develop a class consciousness, that is an awareness of their place in the system. Homespun heroines, I argue, is the history of a distinct class consciousness predicated on membership in three separate classes. Um, woman, their gender, black, their race, and America, their nation. Black American women's triple consciousness produced a specific reality that necessitated strategic maneuvering to ensure black women's empowerment. Brown's decision to organize the biographies chronologically according to the subject's date of birth demonstrates her acknowledgement of the historical tradition of black women's activism and support for women, black people, and the United States. The organizational involvement, multiple careers and roles performed by these women demonstrate their efforts to promote an affirmative vision of Black women. The ultimate result Margarita Lyons held was the formation of a sisterhood. This included the establishment of reforms, the cementing of bonds of unity, the defense of dignity of our women. And if I may note, it was Hallie Quinn Brown who stated um, that Black women needed a conference of, of women, both locally and nationally, to foster closer relationships between women and the contact of sisterly affection. Furthermore, the familiar ties and spiritual kinships forged between the subjects and biographers and homespun heroines confirmed the existence of a collective commitment to Black women by Black women. As the document and textual representation of Black women's class consciousness, homespun heroine used homespun heroines, excuse me, used Black women's lives and relationships to politicize their identity and behavior. In conclusion, I have presented a few aspects of the work of Ms. Hallie Quinn Brown and demonstrated how she used her voice through the spoken and written word to advocate in behalf of Black people and specifically Black women. And so through an examination of the work of a woman who worked and stood in the margins, we can see how she inspired people, sought to correct ahistorical imaginings of Black women, how she countered the singular narrative about Black women. She celebrated the tenacity, resilience, and hope of Black women. She preserved Black history and contributed to the institutionalization of the study of Black women as a subject of serious inquiry. And as my forthcoming book will show, Brown was involved in many other historic moments that offer us the opportunity to learn more about her and the experiences about Black women in America at the turn of the 20th century. Thank you. I am going to bring Edna back in and she will moderate the Q&A. There she is. <laughs> Oh, I believe you're muted. <laughs> thank you so much, Dr. Goodwin. Uh, technology is not my thing. So thank you for your presentation and being so uh, patient with me as well through this. Mm -hmm. 
I continue to be inspired by Hallie Quinn Brown every time I hear more about her. Um, and we appreciate this. In fact, uh, this presentation, Dr. Goodwin uh, originally presented this wonderful program a few days ago. Uh, it was uh, due to a glitch. It was not recorded. And we thank her for agreeing to come back and record it again, which it has been. And so now uh, she is immortal, as is Dr. <laughs> Hallie Quinn Brown, at least for the next 30 days. <laughs> and you can get a link to this presentation to use and to share with others by contacting the Black Mountain Public Library. As Dalia said, we do have a few questions to follow up. Um, and the first is, how did you uh, come upon uh, Hallie Quinn Brown? She's definitely uh, a woman who was ahead of her time. How did you find out about her? Why did you decide to research her? Yes. So um, I knew that I wanted to uh, study and research black women for um, my Ph.D., and um, initially, I wanted to do something on Ida B. Wells Barnett. I was just completely fascinated um, with her, and I thought she was just an amazing person. And then um, a ultimate biography was published on Holly, uh, excuse me, on Ida B. Wells Barnett during um, my time in graduate school. And so I said, well, who who else can we can we talk about um, and and share with with other people? And so in my research, um, I kept coming across her name, and she was in all these different places. I said, well, who is she? And so um, I couldn't find any real information um, on her. There was very um, little that had been written on her at the time. And so um, I said, well, here she is. And so um, um, I just I became um, just um, so impressed with her, and um, she I was just attracted to her, and so I um, so I have engaged um, with her and um, worked to explain um, her work for America. And we're glad you did. Thank you. One question that came in is, whatever became of the Mammy Monument? Yes, that is a good question. Uh, thankfully, the Mammy Monument was never constructed. <laughs> And so, uh, so we don't have to uh, worry about that um, particular monument. Although this does um, bring up other questions of other um, sorts of Confederate monuments, um, and th and that's for another conversation. Um, but um, but it does uh, beg the question of you know the construction of uh, monuments and how um, and how do we engage with these conversations that people um, are wanting to have of things that are important to them, while at the same time not being disrespectful and, um, and misrepresenting um, other groups of people at the same time. So long story short, the Black Mammy Monument was never constructed in Washington, D.C. And we are grateful for that. <laughs> yes. Um, how can we expose our school-aged children to these prominent Black heroines, some of which would have been in the homespun uh, wisdom, but also um, those other women we are reading about, particularly during this uh, month focusing on women, women, I think. But how can we expose them to that? And are there textbooks, is, or how can we get her story and other stories in textbooks? Yes, so um, I think textbooks are one way um, to go about it, but I also encourage um, the um, other individual uh, monographs um, that are being written um, 
by um, many historians, especially black women historians, who are uncovering and, um, and exposing these women to larger audiences in a modern era. So, um, so current um, biographies that are being published, in addition to that, children's books. Um, many times um, we write books and we, and we publish information for adult audiences and then forget about the, um, the children audiences in the school system. So, um, so writing um, books for both um, sets of audiences, both adult and children, I think would be helpful in spreading the, um, the information around to all different uh, constituencies. And I understand you might be doing both because you yes. are writing a yes, book. I do, have, I do have a desire to uh, <laughs> do a children's book on Hallie Quinn Brown in addition to my um, major uh, biography on her. And that biography is going to be titled Sisterly Affections. Yes. Tell us about that title. Yes. So one of the things that um, Hallie Quinn Brown said um, about uh, founding a conference for um, black women to um, to meet collectively to discuss their condition um, in America and the things that they um, that they need and desire um, was she said that um, black uh, women needed the contact of sisterly affections and I just thought that phrase was so powerful and so beautiful and so I decided to um, to take that uh, phrase and 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 see how she um, manifested that in her life. Right. And she did that through her work for and by um, black women. She was committed to uh, black women's empowerment. And so she did that for other black women. So that contact of sisterly affections really um, illuminates the, um, the, the work of, of Brown, why she did what she did. We can't wait for the book to be published, and we can't wait to have a book launch so that hopefully in a, in a year or so we'll have you back yes. and we'll be celebrating the launch of that book and perhaps the children's version later as well. Thank you so much, Dr. Goodwin. And we want to say thank you to Melissa Presley, Melissa Presley who was behind the scenes uh, she is the head librarian at Black Mountain Library and certainly did so much to help bring this presentation together. Um, as I said, you can uh, contact Black Mountain Library to get the link to that. And in just a moment, Dr. Goodwin is going to put her contact information if you have questions or if you want to uh, invite her to make this presentation elsewhere, you may get in touch with her there at Warren Wilson. College, this has been a delightful time together and wonderful learning for all of us. So thank you very, very much, Dr. Goodwin. Thank you for having me. Thank you all for watching. Goodbye. Welcome back. And uh, that was a discussion on uh, the lifetimes and contributions of Hallie Brown Quinn, uh, African-American uh, writer, uh, biographer, historian, elocutionist, uh, organizer, and a public speaker. And you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, uh, February the 12th, uh, 2023. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week.
Don't you abuse it I gave you tender love and care Oh baby Now don't you misuse it Girl, and if you got somebody else If you got somebody else On your mind I want you to please, 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 baby. Ah, let me down easy. I sweated and toiled for you, baby. I know, I know you know it. But if you got any appreciation for me You got a sad, sad way of showing it Oh yeah If you got somebody If you got somebody If you got someone else on your mind I want you to please Let me down You ought to give credit, baby Yeah Oh, baby Where credit Where credit is due right now
history and culture of black people in the United States. And of course, uh, Robeson uh, read a poem uh, of uh, Langston Hughes entitled The Freedom Train. Let's listen to uh, Paul Robeson uh, in his uh, rendition of uh, The Freedom Train, uh, which uh, of course was a very, very popular poem uh, by uh, the legendary uh, Langston Hughes. And you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide uh, radio broadcast. And, of course, we are here uh, broadcasting live uh, from our studios uh, in uh, downtown Detroit. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Zikawe, and uh, this is African American uh, History Month. And uh, we, of course, are delighted uh, to be with you uh, this month uh, to present uh, this programming uh, for you. Let's listen to Langston Hughes being read by Paul Robeson, the poem entitled Freedom Train. A poem by Langston Hughes, Checking on the Freedom Train. I read in the papers about the Freedom Train. I heard on the radio about the Freedom Train. I've seen folks talking about the Freedom Train. Lord, I've been awaiting for that Freedom Train. Washington, Richmond, Durham, Chattanooga, Atlanta, way across Georgia. Lord, Lord, Lord. Lord, way down in Dixie, the only trains I see got Jim Crow coaches set aside for me. I hope there's no Jim Crow on the Freedom Train, no back door entrance to the Freedom Train, no signs for colored on the Freedom Train, no white folks only on the Freedom Train. I'm going to check up. I'm going to check up on this Freedom Train. Who's the engineer on the Freedom Train? Can a cold black man drive the Freedom Train? Or am I still a porter on the Freedom Train? Is there ballot boxes on the Freedom Train? The colored folks vote on the Freedom Train? When it stops in Mississippi, will it be made plain that everybody's got a right to board the Freedom Train? I'm gonna check up. I'm gonna check up on this Freedom Train. The Birmingham stations mark colored and white. White folks left, the colored right. They even got a segregated lane. Is that the way to get aboard the Freedom Train? I'm gonna check up. I'm going to check up on this freedom train. If my children ask, Daddy, please explain. Why a Jim Crow station for the freedom train? What shall I tell my children? You tell me. Because freedom ain't freedom when a man ain't free. My brother named Jimmy died at Anzio. He died for real, and it wasn't no show. Is this here freedom on the freedom train really freedom? For sure. Now let the freedom train come zooming down the track, gleaming in the sunlight for white and black. Not stopping at no stations marked colored no white. Just stopping in the fields in the broad daylight. Stopping in the country in the wide open air, where there never was a Jim Crow sign nowhere. And no lily white committees, politicians of note, nor poll tax mayors for which colored can't vote. And there won't be no kind of color line. The freedom train will be yours and mine. Then maybe from their graves in Anzio, 
Black men in white will say, we want it so. Black men in white will say, ain't it fine? At home, they got a freedom train. A freedom train that's yours and mine. Uh, that was uh, Paul Robeson reading the poem, The Freedom Train, uh, by Langston Hughes. Now let's hear from the man himself, uh, Langston Hughes, uh, with his uh, poem as a tribute to African-American women. Harlem, sweetie, have you dug the spill of Sugar Hill? Cast your gims on this sepia thrill. Brown sugar lassie, caramel treat, honey gold baby sweet enough to eat. Peach skin girly, coffee and cream, chocolate darling out of a dream. Walnut tinted or cocoa brown, pomegranate lips pride of the town. Rich cream colored to plum tinted black. Feminine sweetness in Harlem's no lack. Glow of the quince to blush of the rose. Persimmon bronze to cinnamon toes. Blackberry cordial, Virginia dare wine. All those sweet colors flavor Harlem of mine. Walnut or cocoa, let me repeat. Caramel, brown sugar, a chocolate treat. Molasses taffy, coffee and cream. Licorice, clove, cinnamon to a honey brown dream. Ginger, wine gold, persimmon, blackberry. All through the spectrum, Harlem girls vary. So if you want to know beauty's rainbow sweet thrill, stroll down luscious, delicious, fine Sugar Hill. Langston Hughes uh, with the poem entitled Harlem Sweeties. And, of course, his political uh, poetry, of course, uh, was very, very significant and prominent uh, in uh, the trajectory of Langston Hughes. This one deals uh, with the defeat uh, of uh, Nazi Germany. Uh, in Stalingrad in the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics in 1943. Let's listen in. Good morning, Stalingrad. Good morning, Stalingrad. Lots of folks who don't like you had give you up for dead. But you ain't dead. Good morning, Stalingrad. Where I live, down in Dixie, things is bad. But they're not so bad I still can't say... Good morning, Stalingrad. And I'm not so dumb, I still don't know that as long as your red star lights the sky, we won't die. Good morning, Stalingrad. You're half a world away or more, but when your guns roar, they roar for me and for everybody who wants to be free. Good morning, Stalingrad. Some folks try to tell me down this way, that you're our ally just for today. That may be so for those who want it so. But as for me, you're my ally until we all are free. Good morning, Stalingrad. When crooks and clansmen lift their heads and things is bad, I can look way across the sea and see where simple working folks like me lift their heads too with gun in hand to drive the fascists from the land. You've stood between us well, Stalingrad. The folks who hate you had done give you up for dead. They were glad. But you ain't dead. And you won't be as long as I am you and you are me. 
For you have allies everywhere, all over the world who care, and they are with you more than just today. Listen, I don't own no radio. I can't send no messages through the air. But I reckon you can hear me anyhow away off there. And I know you know I mean it when I say, maybe in a whisper to keep the clan away. Good morning, Stalingrad. I'm glad you ain't dead. Good morning, Stalingrad. Langston Hughes uh, with the poem entitled Good Morning, Stalingrad. And um, we're going to listen uh, to a rare archival audio file of a program uh, that uh, where Langston Hughes played a very, very important role uh, with Studs Terkel, uh, the radio personality from Chicago. Also in this uh, audio documentary is James Cotton uh, of Chicago, of the James Cotton Blues Band, and uh, Otis Spann, who also played uh, with the legendary Muddy Waters. Let's listen uh, to uh, this uh, documentary on the blues. Uh, where Langston Hughes uh, discusses his intervention uh, with blues, uh, with the uh, theater, and other aspects uh, of African-American culture. Let's listen in. James Cotton, piano, Otis Spann. The blues were in the Louis Sullivan room of Roosevelt University, and Louis Sullivan known for his uh, good acoustics of the buildings he designed, and was seated next to Langston Hughes, who you might call as a quadruple fret man, poet, composer, playwright, novelist, short. Langston and Brother John Sellers is here, too, whom we'll hear in a moment. Langston, what is the blues? How would you describe it? Well, the blues are certainly the roots of jazz, the basic heartbeat behind America's most popular music, and out of the blues have come many, many great melodic compositions, ranging all the way from the raw folk blues not written down to the W.C. Handy, the Clarence Williams compositions, J.P. Johnson to uh, the use that uh, composers like George Gershwin have made of blues themes. Rhapsody in Blue, Porgy and Bess, the uh, French ballet, you know, with Nola Down, was really a blues ballet uh, adopted uh, by a French arranger-composer. The blues has served so many purposes. I'm thinking of you, how the blues itself has affected practically all your writings in one way or another, hasn't it? Well, it's affected my poetry, shall we put it that way, a great deal, and... uh, Possibly my prose to a certain extent because the blues, the lyrics of the blues, not speaking of the music now, the lyrics have um, a great uh, warmth and humanity usually in them. 
and often very deep sadness, but always somewhere in a blues there's a, a twist that makes people laugh. In other words, there's humor in the blues too. And I uh, certainly have, to some extent, carried that over into my prose, particularly in my simple books. I'm thinking of, a, as you said, something here that is too rarely said, that there's a humor, there's an affirmation in the blues, too, as well as a, a sadness. Oh, yes. You know, uh, the verse that I often quote, which I heard many, many years ago in Kansas City as a child, uh, illustrates that. The one about, um, I'm going down to the railroad, lay my head on the track, Going down to the railroad, lay my head on the track. But if I see the train a-coming, I'll jerk it back. <laughs> <laughs> the will to live is there no matter how adverse the circumstance. Yeah. Well, Langston, as James Cotton and Otis Spann are here and playing oh so soulfully, uh, perhaps uh, some of your varied projects and, and uh, works. And I'm thinking specifically something happened a couple of weeks ago while Otis and James are still here. At the Newport Jazz Festival, which we heard ended rather suddenly and shockingly, sadly. sadly. Yet, uh, was it, were you emceeing the very last session? Do you mind telling us about that? Well, uh, the night before the Sunday afternoon program, the third night of the festival this year, um, there were riot, riots in the streets which had really nothing to do with jazz. It simply had to do with the fact that the town was very much overcrowded that there were perhaps 15,000 young people who, some who couldn't get into the park and others who had no intention of going to hear the jazz program, uh, were outside in the streets. And uh, the park was crowded, sold out, but quiet. The program was quite wonderful. There were uh, people like Ray Charles and uh, Horace Silver Quintet playing and a very wonderful crowd inside the park enjoying the music, but outside there were young people, and they were not teenagers on the whole, they were college age and older, who uh, decided to have fun by throwing beer cans over the yeah. fans and hitting people in the head who were sitting they there with the really music. They weren't really jazz fans. They weren't really no. jazz fans, they were folks out to have a good time at any cost, and uh, they had loaded up their cars with cases of beer, and... and uh, then some of them decided to try to rush the gate, and that really began the riots, and the police were inadequate, unfortunately, and those who tried to rush the gate did not succeed in getting in, but they did succeed in starting a battle with the police, and other young people joined in by throwing beer cans, and not empty ones, full so beer cans. So the people who wanted to hear jazz are the ones who were the losers. Who right? are the losers, and the, it developed into a riot of not the enormous proportions that the newspapers might have indicated, but it was only around uh, of about four well, blocks. Mike, there's something uh, poetically uh, tragic here about this very last session. You were emceeing a session Sunday after the very last of Newport. Yes, and quite by On the accident it happened to be the blues. And none of us knew, of course, that that would be the final session. And just before the program began, the city council met to decide what to do about the festival or the rest of it for the season and being quite irate at what had gone on the night before about one o'clock they announced that they had withdrawn the license for the festival forever which not only cancelled the remaining programs but uh, next season and ever thereafter uh, however my afternoon program was allowed to go on because they hadn't made up their minds by that time and it just happened to be a program on the blues so since it was a sad afternoon was appropriate that the blues end the festival. And uh, 
when I heard this news, I was already at the park. So I went into the press room, and I didn't have any paper or anything with me, and got a Western Union telegraph blank and wrote a blues for Newport. Goodbye, Newport Blues. Yes, this is a blues written on the spot. Written right on the spot, which I imagine is the way many blues began out of some sad event. I was just about to And uh, Otis Band had arrived with the Muddy Waters Band, and I uh, asked if he would be so kind as to play it and sing it, and he'd never seen it before, so quite spontaneously, he gave this blues a melody. And out of this sad event, within uh, a couple of hours, grew this blues with which we closed the whole afternoon. And on the stage at the time when we closed were all the members of the Muddy Waters Band, including the harmonica player here, and uh, uh, Sammy Price Trio, uh, Butch Cage, and Willie Lewis uh, from Louisiana, from Louisiana and... Uh, Jimmy Rushing, who was sitting in the audience, came up and joined us in the last jam session, and all of these people took part in this finale, singing A Gloomy Day at Newport. This well, if, uh, since Otis Spann is here at the piano and, and uh, James Cotton with a mouth harp, with a harmonica, perhaps recreating this event, this moment, singing what you wrote, the uh, hot from the flush of that moment, you know, in the Newport Blues, sad day at Newport <laughs>
Providence Journal of that day, of that next morning, and it ends in this way. And it's a few moments later, after an original blues tomb up the end of the Newport Jazz, the performers walked silently off the stage. Audience began shuffling out, many of them wet-eyed. Two men began dismantling the canvas walls. A technician dismantled the microphones on the stage. Someone closed the piano. Langston Hughes, with a trembling voice, said, Goodbye, Newport. And it's remarkable, Langston, how this... Uh, real sadness is imbued in the very song itself that you composed at that moment. Well, the blues have that quality, and many, many blues have been made up spontaneously. So I think this is sort of in the true tradition of the blues that out of this event on the spot, there came this song. And it was a very sad moment, but my feeling is that the city fathers of Newport will reconsider during the I summer. I hope so. One of your recent works, so many works, is From Tambourines to Glory, the story of these two gospel women on their adventures. Uh, this, tell us about this. There's a project in mind, aside from the book. Yes, it um, grew from a series of gospel songs that I wrote about ten years ago, and they were not recorded, although Mahalia Jackson liked some of them very much and said she hoped to do them. So uh, I thought, well, I'll write a play and put the songs in the play. And I did. The play ran around Broadway for three or four years and got favorable comments, but no one took it. So I said, well, I'll write a novel. So from the play, I wrote the novel, Tambourines to Glory, 
And the novel had scarcely been out a week before producers began to call up and say, it would make a wonderful play. <laughs> and I said, well, I have the play. <laughs> and they said, it should be a play with music. And I said, well, I have the music. And so almost immediately after the novel appeared, the theater girl optioned the play about a year ago. And, of course, it takes a long time to get things into the theater. But eventually they got around to auditioning, to casting. And in about two weeks, the rehearsals are scheduled to start for the dramatic version, Tambourines to Glory. And I know uh, this is a very delightful book. It's a book of a great deal of, how shall we call it, the raciness of life in it. It's like the juice of life. And uh, before we talk about the cast and about Brother John, who's in it too, uh, gospel music. I mean, you like the blues, and of course you like gospel music. Would you mind telling us of the connection? And, you know, some well, of course, as um, line, you know. gospel music is a modern religious music of the Negro people, and it grew out of, melodically, out of the spirituals and the blues, too. And its foremost um, composer, uh, Dorsey, Thomas A. Dorsey, who, who lives, in, lives Chicago. in Chicago, by the way, and who wrote some very beautiful gospel songs, Precious Lord, Take My Hand, uh, he himself... His first musical interest was the blues. And uh, many years ago, he was the pianist for the great old blues singer, Ma Rainey. And so naturally... That's Georgia Tom. Yes. And naturally, when he came over into the gospel field, he carried certain qualities of that music, the blues music, with him. And uh, when you hear Mahalia Jackson, many people have compared her style of singing uh, to that of the great blues singer, Bessie Smith. Although, of course, Mahalia sings religious songs, not blues, but in those songs and in the way of singing them, there is much of the quality of the singers of the blues. Well, uh, thinking of uh, Tambourines to Glory, then, that will have gospel music as its base. Yeah. And I think and, uh, Hazel Scott is cast in it. Hazel Scott has the leading role of the woman who wants to found a church along with a friend of hers, a good woman, and Hazel plays the woman who's sort of interested only in making money out of religion. So we have the old struggle between good and evil in the terms of the church. The spiritual. Yes. <laughs> now, Brother John is leaving in Chicago, and he's going to... Uh, what role will, will, will Johnny Sellers play in this? Uh, well, we had sort of hoped to have him for the deacon, but we are not sure at the moment, but it's certain that he's going to be in it, and he's a great tambourine player, as you know, and the title of the play is Tambourines to Glory, and among other duties that he is to have is to uh, uh, coach all of the people in the play on how to play a gospel tambourine. <laughs> well, I think that John can do that without any inhibitions. <laughs> I think you mentioned... Well, Brother John, have you any idea what song you will sing in that? Uh, uh, no, uh, because um, I've seen several songs in the script, but um, mm -hmm. since I don't know just mm -hmm. what part I'm playing, I wouldn't know. You know what occurred to me? I think of uh, Brother John's Baptist shouts and gospel songs from Monitor that are so good. And yes. since a while ago, Langston mentioned Professor Darcy oh, yes. and Precious Lord. Yeah. Think, man, no, Jenny knows that. And there's Otis there, you know. And since <laughs> we live really two lives, there is, it's true that gospel songs are one world and blues are another. Yet a man can find a way, That's as Jenny right. doesn't know. You think it's possible, perhaps, of a... What do you think, Langston? Oh, Precious Lord? If we could, uh, Johnny might if we could uh, like perform that as a tribute to Darcy, because I admire him greatly, and he happens to be Chicago's, uh, in my opinion, perhaps one of Chicago's most distinguished composers, you know? Well, Brother John, Otis, uh, James, oh, yes. have you decided on the key? Uh, uh, 
What do you think? Yeah, I, I can uh, just start, and you can just pick me right. up, Otis. Okay. Precious Lord, take my hand, lead me on, let me stand, I am tired. time, you know, that gospel music has been used in the Broadway theater, and it'll be its introduction to the world of show business. 
really. And in my opinion, the Negro churches that use this music are, in a sense, the last refuge of true Negro folk singing, you know? Uh, nobody tampers with those singers. They sing as they feel, as they wish. They're not told what to do by record executives mm -hmm. or musical directors. And so much of our folk music is being sort of uh, polluted or dil diluted, certainly, by the jukebox, by the radio, by television. A&R men, the recording yeah, companies. And, yes, and uh, right. you go all over the country now, and many of the youngsters are trying to sing like Nat King Cole or uh, mm -hmm. somebody they hear on the radio, you see. And uh, that is not true of the churches yet. And so folk music still there is in a pure form. Something you said here about uh, the church being the last refuge of the true gospel music. Isn't this true, too, because the audience, the call and response is there, too? Oh, yes. And everyone Just as Otis was calling out a moment ago. Everyone takes part in it, you see, and nothing is planned. It's all spontaneous and real and wonderful. You know, I was thinking, as we're talking now, we're going to come to other subjects of Langston. We'll hear Otis and, and James. I think while Johnny's still here, since we talked about response called audience, the element of demonstration, too. I know Johnny does this so well. Demonstrating. Yes. A sing on. Yes. Yeah, would you mind? I know Johnny does this, oh, but I, I never get tired. You ever hear John sing sing on? Uh, uh, no, like, I don't believe I have, but well, before he does it, may, may I simply say this, that um, uh, as you know, next week I have a book coming out called An African Treasury. I know. Which has a number of articles, essays, by black Africans. Uh, everything in the book is by indigenous Africans, poetry, stories, and so on. And among the articles are two quite excellent ones on African songs, one on African work songs and another on African poetry and music um, by a great African uh, musicologist who's been in this country recently, Rockefeller Foundation. Mm -hmm. And he says in there uh, a great deal about this call and response, mm -hmm. which is carried over from Africa into the... Negro churches here. I mean, I want to ask about this book, the, the African Treasury, as we go along, because I know this is certainly uh, it's so timely. And, well, I, and I simply wanted need. to point out the uh, carryovers from Africa yes. in our Negro music. I want to come America. back to that, too, mm -hmm. the African and the cinema, African music. Uh, perhaps uh, while John is still here, uh, the matter of sing, sing on, Johnny, would you mind telling us what you mean by demonstrating? Well, uh, what I mean by demonstrating in, in the churches, you know, uh, like years ago, I used to see me Hadia when she was with the Johnson singers. And these singers, oh, this has been 25, maybe 30 years ago, they would Don't demonstrate. Say that. <laughs> they would demonstrate in their songs like they would sing songs like they were looking for the storm that was hewed out the mountain. Or maybe they would, the Bible would be placed in one particular place in the church and they would sing up until they said they found the storm and they would show it. And that's, they'd walk all around and, and using their hands and making emotions. That's what I mean by demonstrating. You heard me out at the church yeah. one time when we had to thing for Big Bill, uh, do sing on and yeah. how I showed how to By the way, I, I should like to, while we're here, mention uh, this concert. Uh, when is this uh, Baptist Shout Gospel song? Oh, this I'm, is Sunday afternoon. Uh, Sunday afternoon. Yeah. Uh, at uh, 1944, South Cottage Grove, St. John's Temple. And I should point out, too, that Otis Spann works with Muddy Waters, one of our finest blues singers, at Smitty's Corners, I believe, on 35th Indiana. And uh, James Cotton works there, too. We'll ask later on about the mouth harp 
that about the piano. But, Jenny, is it possible? I know the microphone is stationary here, and you need room for singing out. But is it well, possible? Uh, you know, if, if I'm in the church, I need room. Yeah. <laughs> but here you can, you can, can you sort of do it? Yeah, here? well, yeah. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. all right. And, and you can catch it, or it's just a thing. Uh, now you sing on, sing on my singer. Yeah, you sing on, sing on my leader. Under the Lord, hear you sing, hear you sing on, sing my singer, and don't you worry about your leader. Well, every night get different, I'm gonna put on my shoes, I'm gonna walk around in heaven. Hello, good news, I'm going to turn on my sidekick. Tell him about my troubles and I'll be talking to the Lord, oh Lord, my way of
Well, certainly the word is Langston, just as Brother John sang that there. You, showing them how it's done, really, is what it amounts to. Showing them how to do it, how to reach where you want to get. And where you want to get is pretty definitely a higher place. Yes, indeed. Langston and Brother John, thanks. We'll come back, and I'm going to come to Otis and James. Nice, I think about the poetry. You're here, too, in Chicago in connection with the filming. Just finished of Raisin in the Sun, uh, being made into a film. And yes, uh, I am. They're using a poem of mine as a spoken prologue to the picture. Uh, uh, they printed it in the theater program, but it was not in the play. However, it's going to actually be spoken in the play by, in the movie by Sidney Poitier. This is the very beginning. Yes. Right. Would you mind... Uh, Reading that to us, like The uh, poem is called Dream Deferred, and one line in the poem gave the title to the play, the line raisin in the sun. What happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun, or fester like a sore and then run? Does it stink like rotten meat, or crust and sugar over like a syrupy sweet? Maybe it just sags like a heavy load, or does it explode? And there, out of this simple yet very eloquent poem, the whole theme of raising the sun itself, Walter Lee Younger's yen problem, that of his mother, of course. And uh, Lorraine Hansberry, then, in reading your poem, I got the idea for the title, isn't that, from the play? Yes, I think perhaps she's already written the play, but Miss Hansberry was kind enough to say that my poetry has had quite an influence on her work and that she read it as a child, you know? Well, since we're thinking of Raisin of the Sun, Lorraine Hans, we think of one of the uh, figures in the play, the African student, you know, yeah. how affirmative he seems in, in a, a strange environment for him, and yet he seems to understand it, and, which is, uh, I think, a perfect lead into the anthology of yours, this, this uh, African treasure, an African treasury that is published, uh, the publishers are... Uh, Crown. Uh, Crown. Mm-hmm. And what are uh, uh, stories, poems, articles, essays? Would you mind telling us about this anthology? Well, it's the result of an interest of mine in African writing for some six or seven years, and uh, the boiling down of this collection to... Uh, a dozen or so essays and stories and a dozen or so poems and some miscellaneous items. We even have uh, letters to the lovelorn from African newspapers. And that's there, too. (laughs) Yes, and quite a deal of humor. Um, uh, This um, uh, came about um, by my being chosen to be a judge of an African short story contest about seven years ago now for the magazine Drum. And... Among these drum stories, the magazine in, in Johannesburg, in South Johannesburg, Africa. And it's yes. also published in Ghana, too, isn't it? Ghana, yes, Ghana and it's uh, published exclusively for uh, uh, colored readers. Uh, uh, the words colored and black and negro, you know, don't mean the same with brothers as they do here. And they don't use the word negro really in Africa at all. And uh, so uh, perhaps the word black covers the whole native population. And uh, we call the anthology a collection of work by black Africans. Uh, at any rate, uh, it took uh, several years to gather the material, hundreds of manuscripts, uh, several hundred dollars in airmail postage, <laughs> 25 cents to mail a letter to Africa, you know, many manuscripts that had to be returned. But eventually, I got together what I feel to be a representative selection from such widely scattered countries as Kenya in Northeast Africa to South Africa itself, uh, Ghana, Sierra Leone, Nigeria, Madagascar, 
And uh, it is really the, I think, the most comprehensive collection of work by Africans of color, native indigenous Africans, ever to be published in the world, probably. Is, is there a recurring theme among the... Well, the, if, you, if you might say there is a main theme, it's a sort of pride in Africanness, a pride in uh, their own country, a pride in blackness, really, and uh, 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 an assurance and a hope for their own future. And, of course, through almost everything runs the current African feeling for freedom to govern themselves, to run their own affairs, even if they do make mistakes. And uh, we've had very splendid books on Africa, uh, John Gunther's book, Inside Africa, uh, the Alan Patton books, the Nadine Gornema novels, all very fine. But all Basil Davidson, the lot yeah, of cities. Yeah, oh, very fine books, but all by whites, you see. And to get the real African native feeling, it seems to me important that we also read what the black Africans are writing, and that is what this book is. It will be out next week, by the way. Stories, yeah. articles, essays of sorts. There's yeah. one that's intriguing, the, uh, the African and Africa and the cinema. Oh, yes, there's an excellent article there by J. Koyindi Vaughan of Nigeria, who's really a lawyer, but in his spare time he writes about movies. And uh, there's an excellent piece about the stereotypes that plague the commercial movies uh, done in Africa or done about Africa, you know. And most of them, of course, are from the colonial viewpoint and have almost nothing in them of modern Africa, of the fact that there are Africans who uh, are chemists, who run machines, who, who control uh, ports, who take customs. All the movies show are the witch doctors and boom, 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 tom, tom, tom. <laughs> isn't, there, isn't there a... Ch I'm, I'm curious what with films like Raisin on the Sun. Of course, this is the American uh, Negro, but I'm wondering if there eventually, because of what is happening in the world, the changes in the whole uh, filmmaker's approach. Oh, oh, of course they will. Uh, uh, Sidney Poitier was just talking on location today about that, and he was saying that some of the African governments are already setting up their own film units, mm -hmm. largely for documentaries at the moment, but eventually they will be able to make uh, films of entertainment value, film African stories, and so on, you know? I noticed in the in the table of contents here, partial table of contents, some names that are quite familiar. Peter Comalo. Yeah, South he's Africa, a very good writer. And Peter, uh, Peter Abrams, Abrams. Peter Abrams. Who, of course, is a refugee from apartheid. He lives in Jamaica now. And, and uh, these are some of the better-known writers. And then uh, there are... Those and, of, uh, of course, we have some of the political writers. We have Nkrumah. Nkrumah and Tom Boya. And we have a very amusing and interesting piece by an African who studied in this country, his impressions of America. That should be very funny. Yeah. Bob's, uh, that's Bob Fafunwa. Fafunwa, uh-huh. Well, this, uh, this book then will be out uh, sometime in the middle of it July. It will be out, um, to be exact, July 25th. An African treasury edited Langston Hughes' crown. And certainly, like uh, I think it's an addition to anyone's library who wants to know and who doesn't uh, what is happening in very vital part of the world. And we may return now to this world of ours here. We open with the blues. Remember we open with the blues and then we heard Brother John and uh, some gospel songs. And By the way, when will... Ta did we uh, mention Tambourines to Glory's uh, time of yes, opening? Yes, I think I yeah, said I think it goes into rehearsal uh, in a couple of weeks and the plan is to open it in Summer Theater, uh, Westport Labor Day week, and then to tour for eight weeks if things work out well. 
Well, I and think, then go to New York. I think with uh, Brother John Sellers in this cast, Hazel Scott better watch out. <laughs> it should be. <laughs> well. Now, when we wander a minute to, I'd like to just talk with Otis and, and with James for a minute about the music. Otis, uh, I know that Johnny's from Greenville, Mississippi, and uh, Langston was Cleveland, but Kansas City Missouri, to okay. Missouri originally. Where are you from, Otis? I'm from uh, Pilatch, Mississippi, which is a small, small town. Now, what about the piano, you, you and music? When did this come into being? Well, I'll tell you, well, my father, he was a piano player. And when I got old enough to play, he took care of me around with him, in which we had a house, you know, like this. Well, on a Saturday night, the only time the people around my neighborhood could get out. You understand? And we take our fish fries, which me and my father used to go muddy creeks and catch the fish and have our own fish fries. And your own fish fries. I'd you could have fish them for 10 cents. Uh-huh. And so you had, you had music with that. That's right. We had music with this. And back in the back, we done something else, gambling. Uh, but that's just the way my hometown was. And we uh, What about uh, you learning the piano? How did you learn the piano? That's the way I learned because... By yourself? During the, no. no, during the time... There was a fellow by the name of Coot Davis. He called himself the Emperor of the Irie, which he was. Mm-hmm. He was the Emperor of the Irie. The Imp yeah. of the Irie. So he came from England, and he taught me. I was only six years old. But after I got some size, I got off uh, his style of playing. And I got on the style of Muddy Waters. Which have been with Muddy Water 17 years. Been with Muddy 17 years. 17 years. And you've worked with Willie Dixon, too, then. I worked with Willie then. Dixon, too, yeah. sure. And so we have at least uh, a beginning, we understanding of Otis Spann and his blues piano. I'm looking at James Cotton now here. Yes. And wh- wh- where are you from, James? I'm from Trinica, Mississippi. Now, what about the harmonica? How did how, harmo- you take to the harmonica? Uh, well, my brother, he used to play the harmonica, you know. I sat around the house... And look at him play the harmonica because me and him played the same harmonica, you know. And because that I couldn't get the sounds out of it that he get, I used to go in the bedroom and cry, you know, because I wanted to make it sound like that. So we kept on that, and he kept on showing me a few things until finally I learned how to play one song sitting on top of the world. And uh, then he quit playing the harp. Then I started playing the harp. The first time I ever played the harp and got paid. Make sure the harp sometimes is what the harmonica is called. Harmonica. That's right. And after I started playing the harmonica pretty good, I got a lucky break when I was about 12, I guess. I started playing with a guy by the name of Howlin' Wolf. Oh, the Howlin' Wolf. Howlin' Wolf. I played with him four years. He was the first one to give me a break to play the harmonica. And after him, I didn't know the things that I should have known about it then. After him, I met Sonny Boy. Williamson. Williamson. And he showed me a whole lot about it. And after Sonny Boy, I performed my own band. And then after that, I come with Muddy Waters. And Muddy Waters showed me everything that I think that you can learn about it. So I think since we opened, uh, James Cotton noticed, we opened with the blues. And uh, Langston here is saying, let's close with the blues. I'm sure Brother John would agree, because this again, we come back to the seeds, don't we? So, gentlemen, a blues.
A Blues. Box hold all my clothes. And on that note, Langston Hughes, the blues with about as many definitions as there are singers, as there are people in the world, as there are moods. Say thank you very much, gentlemen. Otis Spann at the piano and James Cotton at the harmonica and 
Brother John Sellers with his gospel music and soon and tampering to glory and of course Langston Hughes quadruple quintuple threat man thank you very much <laughs> thank you very much Dennis Terrell <laughs> Welcome back, and that was a uh, tribute uh, to Langston Hughes, along with uh, James Cotton and Otis Spann, uh, featuring uh, Studs Turkle, and uh, that was uh, the conclusion of this uh, episode of the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Sunday, February 12, 2023. And we will continue our focus on African-American History Month and our upcoming programs for the month. If you'd like to have access to this program, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And if you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. We're going to close out uh, with the music of Detroit's own Aretha Franklin uh, from her concert in Paris uh, during uh, 1968. Aretha Franklin, uh, live in Paris. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off, and have a beautiful week.
would believe me If I said if I lose this dream I don't know what I'm gonna do
Tell me, do you like the blues? Do you really like the blues? Good.
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.